This program is sponsored by Hanover Square Press, publisher of MS-13 by Stephen Dudley. Winner of the Lucas Prize, MS-13 is the definitive account of the most notorious street gang in America, as seen through the lives of gang members and their families caught in its malicious web. Available now wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Between 2000 and 2014, America's maternal mortality rate grew by 26.6%. In the rest of the world, the number steadily declined. Most of those deaths, in the wealthiest country in the world, mind you, were preventable. And while the infant mortality rate has declined over that same period in the United States, it has declined more significantly in other countries. These gruesome statistics disproportionately affect black women, regardless of class. In the September issue, Naomi Jackson writes about her pregnancy and birth experience, which were marked by dismissiveness, outright callousness, and negligence from several medical professionals. I spoke with Jackson, the author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, about her article and about larger issues around care and birth. The horrifying twin phenomena that are Black maternal mortality and Black infant mortality have gained widespread attention in recent years, in large part because this is an issue that persists across class. But just as with police brutality, this is a very old problem that has gone unaddressed because of racism or has been dismissed as anecdotal also because of racism. You spell out the devastating reality for Black people giving birth in the form of statistics and miniature profiles of victims and traumatized survivors like yourself. Experiencing it was one thing. Why did you decide to write about it? And what was your intention in doing so? Sure. Um, so I appreciate the question. I think I would push back a little bit on identifying as a traumatized survivor. Um, All right. I think that what I experienced was very challenging. I'm not sure that it's not so much about whether it quote unquote counts as trauma. It's just like I tried it not. I don't identify that way. But I think I decided to write about it in, in part because I was just trying to process what had happened to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot that didn't actually make it into the article. I ended up interviewing about 11 people. I have to count because I'm not sure if that um, number is correct. But I spoke to a variety of people who are birth workers, you know, people who are midwives, doulas, folks who are executive directors and founders of various um, black-led perinatal health initiatives. I spoke to a couple of friends and family who were very much a part of my pregnancy and labor and delivery process and even my postpartum care team. And part of what I was just trying to do in the writing of this piece was really just figure out what happened to me. Yeah. I think, you know, writing for most people, at least of this variety, can be both cathartic and clarifying. And so I think both in the process of interviewing people um, and many of the folks who I spoke to actually were also mothers and shared their own birth experiences as part of our conversations. 
So that was an unanticipated set of conversations that I got to have. And that was actually also clarifying to put my own experience into the wider context of other Black women's birth stories. Mm. And to really better understand the range of what people had gone through. So it was interesting because the folks who I spoke to, I think they were all female identified and had given birth, you know, from the late 70s to within the last couple of years. And I found that in the process of talking to those people who had done various kinds of things out of, I think, their own sense of rage, injustice, passion, concern for Black women and Black birthing people. They had done you know, a variety of things. Some people have gone on to become birth workers. Some people have gone on to start these health initiatives. Some people have just become more fired up in their policy or research work. And so those conversations, I think, helped put my experience into a broader context. And even though I wasn't able, I think there was only one quote in the article, even though I had hours and hours of recorded interviews, even though those things weren't able to make it into the final version of the article, they very much informed my perspective. And so I think, you know, I'm generally a very private person. I tend not to share much about my private life publicly. And so it was quite a departure for me to write something that was this deeply personal. And the reason why I felt like I was willing to risk exposing myself and my family to the kind of public eye mm. was because I felt really passionately that what happened to me was not okay. Right. And I felt also that even though there had already been anecdotes, there are lots. Um, so I think the thing I want to say too is I'm like not at all the first black woman to write about a negative birth experience. Like these right. stories have been coming at us literally for centuries. Mm. And in the recent decades they've been here and especially in the last few years. So I think I also felt like I wanted to push back actually on the black maternal mortality statistics a little bit because I felt like while they're true, I was concerned about the ways in which having those statistics repeated to me personally in the years before I got pregnant and then during my pregnancy was actually very anxiety producing. Yes. (laughs) and know that my chances of dying in labor were high. Like, that didn't help me, actually. Right. In a way, it helped me understand that I needed to be very careful about how I proceeded in terms of, like, who I chose to be with me in the delivery room. You know, I have one of my closest friends is an OBGYN, so she was kind of my shadow OBGYN throughout my um, pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And one of my childhood best friend's wife is also OBGYN in California. Um, And so between those two people, I not only had like my kind of regular medical care, but I also had a a backup team of care providers who I check in with very regularly, phone and email, um, to better understand if I was getting the very best care that I could be. And also to, you know, just break down to me um, the kind of medical terminology that was being thrown at me. One of the things that Interesting, I had a conversation with um, Chanel Porsche-Albert, who is the head of Ancient Bond Dual Services in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, we had a really fabulous conversation. And one of the many things she said to me was that we're at this point where basically you need to get a PhD in birthing uh, before you can have this. Because there's all this medical terminology that's thrown at you. And even if you're a very educated person, you know, I have 
two master's degrees, I'm a Fulbright fellow, went to the best colleges and universities in the country. Even with that education, I still sometimes would go, what? Right. (laughs) Would, um, you know, start breaking down what was happening with me and with my pregnancy. And so uh, what I knew as I was going through what I was going through was two things. One, that, you know, people like Beyonce and Serena Williams and Tatiana Ali had had these really traumatic birth experiences in spite of their celebrity and their fame and their money, you know, quite frankly. And so I knew that I had a story to tell um, because I was more regular, you know, like in the words Mm -hmm. of uh, Cardi B, kind of a regular, regular girl. (laughs) As regular, regular girl from the Bronx? Oh, regular, regular. (laughs) Thank you. Let me get my my Cardi B quotes correct. I know hardly about the actual facts, so I appreciate it. I know somebody's going to fact check this afterwards with you. Yes. Get, get that Cardi B post correct. Yes. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to write from a regular person's perspective, but I also knew that even as I was, you know, quote unquote, more regular than those people, I also had a considerable amount of privilege. I'm married. I'm a writer. I published a book. And so I had, I was able to even reach out to Harper's and say, I want to write the story and have the platform to tell the story in a way that people would actually listen to me. And even the fact that I had access to OBGYNs within my own friends network who could give me that kind of ongoing care and check-in, like that mm-hmm. was unusual. I don't actually know that many people, unless you're very privileged, who can say, oh, let me call my, my best friend's wife. Um, who directs the OBGYN residency. Um, her name is Sarah Whetstone. She's amazing. She directs the OBGYN residency at um, the University of California, San Francisco. And another good friend of mine, Pooja Mesa, is the maternal health lead at City Block Health. Um, and so it was really unusual, I think, for a lot of people, no matter what race you are, um, mm-hmm. or no matter what your income is, to have that level of access to professionals who could say, oh, here's what, let me, let me break down in layman's terms what's happening with your pregnancy, you know? Yeah. So I think I knew that my story was both, could be helpful because it was not from the perspective of the celebrity and I thought maybe people could relate to it in a different kind of way because of that. But I also was very aware of the ways in which my own story also reflects a lot of privilege, right? So maybe I didn't have enough money or um, I would have kind of balked at the price of hiring a doula. But my friends decided that I was going to have a doula if I wanted one. And so they, you know, pulled their money together to make sure that I had one. And so that's a privilege that I think a lot of people don't have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I think I, I was incredibly lucky, even as I experienced some things that were difficult. But I think one of the things I wanted people to understand coming after having read what I wrote is that actually the things that I had, you know, access to a doula, access to healthcare providers who could speak to me with respect, care, and thoroughness. Those are things everybody should have. That shouldn't be about privilege or access. That should just be for everyday people. Right. No, I wanted to ask because, you know, the the sense that you have like this incredible support network, um, OBGYNs who are not officially your OBGYN, your doula, 
they that all of that exists outside of what hospitals and doctors provide. And as you say, they aren't available to everyone. How could that be addressed within our current healthcare system? Or is this something or like establishing these sort of networks of support? It's something that could only change with universal health care and also a significant investment in birthing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like, you could add the, the answer to the question could like literally take hours. Um, and I would defer in some way to the people who have done the research and who also are leading some of these perinatal health initiatives. But from my research and talking to people, my sense is that we actually know how to have better outcomes for not just black women, but for birthing people in general. So it's not as if we have no idea how to make these experiences better for people. So we know that um, people who have either doulas or just in general ongoing emotional and physical support during their labors have better labor outcomes. We know that. The evidence supports that. And so if that's the case, why aren't hospitals and healthcare systems offering doulas to every birthing person, right? Like, that should be, I think that that is not actually a radical idea. And in the state of New York, they have been trying to roll out a program to offer doulas, especially to low-income people, people who are on Medicaid and otherwise people who don't have health insurance. But the problems with those programs are really complex. And among them are the fact that doulas are not being compensated fairly for their time. You know, I mentioned earlier that I had kind of balked at the cost of hiring a doula. But once I came to understand what the value of their services were, and I mean, to be frank, in the case of my own delivery, I really feel like having the doula there allowed me to have a safe delivery. The choice is not that extreme for most people. I think what happened to me in terms of there not being a doctor or nurse present was quite unusual. But even if that hadn't been the case, I felt very much as if my choices were supported and I felt way more comfortable being more confident and more vocal about what it is that I wanted during my labor delivery and even during the late stages of my pregnancy because I had a support person who really understood the context. And I think, you know, often people will say, like, well, can't your sister or your mom or somebody else just be your support person? But they don't know labor, really. And even if they do know, like, let's say your mom is a labor and delivery nurse, she should have the chance to be your mom in the delivery room, right? She should not be actually forced into service in a particular kind of way, in that professional way, in that context. You know, there's a reason why doctors don't operate on their own families, for example. And so I think having doulas as a very normal, standard part of the birth experience for people who want them, I think would actually really transform things. I think having um, cultural competency training so that doctors and midwives and you know, all the people who come in contact, dietitians, all the people who come in contact with birthing people throughout their pregnancies and during the labor and delivery process better understand just in a very basic way how to talk to people, right? And so, you know, I think the thing that's interesting in my case is that in the end, nothing truly horrible happens. You know, I'm healthy, my baby's healthy, we're all okay. There were some microaggressions that happened throughout 
my experience, but I'm not even sure that my medical providers would have experienced those things. Like if, if they were to read those, they, I, I think they would think, I was just given this patient information, right? Right. And so I wonder whether or not cultural competency training would help people better um, service their patients. But I also think that we need to change the way the doctors are trained, right? So my experience of having a resident say to me, like, if you can't handle this part of your labor, you're not going to be able to handle labor without an epidural. Like, maybe that was their personal opinion. <laughs> right. It wasn't, help- it wasn't helpful in any way for me in that moment. And it felt aggressive in a way that was not necessary. And so I think that beyond the competency training, I think that there needs to be like an attitude shift in the way that doctors interact with patients generally, but particularly during the labor and delivery process because you're so incredibly vulnerable. You're doing one of the most difficult things that you could ever do in your life, which is to bring a new life forth into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I hate to sound basic or Pollyanna, but like being nice to people actually counts for a lot in the process. And I think beyond that, funding, right? So yep. like, I think even though I experienced, although I'm, I'm not even sure that that that's the answer. I was at one of the best private hospitals in New York City. I have really good health insurance in my job, and so I wasn't a person coming on Medicaid to a publicly funded hospital. So I guess all that is to say, long story short, the advocates around the birth work and birth justice have the answers. There's lots of evidence-based ways to curb infant mortality and um, maternal mortality. So, like, this is Black Breastfeeding Week from, I think, the 24th of August to August 31st, and I've been reading a lot about how just increasing the rates of breastfeeding among Black women could have a significant positive impact on infant mortality rates. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I think a lot of hospitals can do. I mean, luckily, that was one of the things that Mount Sinai did a fantastic job of. I saw a lactation consultant before I left. Right. Because there's this myth. There's this myth that it's like, oh, yeah, you just put the baby up to your breast and it works. And it does not always work. Like, there's this, uh, it's ridiculous. It's not true. There's so much support that you need. I mean, like, I saw a lactation consultant who helped me. One of the nurses who was assigned to me was fabulous in terms of helping me get the baby to latch. But then I went home and I wasn't, my milk hadn't come in yet. And I thought I was doing a great job of feeding this baby and he wasn't getting any milk. He was dehydrated. And in that case, again, I had a friend who's a family physician, um, my friend, um, Dr. Twain Ajayi, who's the founder of um, City Block Health. And Twain came over and kind of manhandled my breast and helped me. Figure out how to get this baby to latch and how to position him properly, how to sit correctly so I didn't injure my back in the process of breastfeeding. And so I had that intervention. And then I had a lactation consultant that I went to again at my pediatrician's office who helped me. Um, so I had a lot of support. And I yeah. think, um, you know, now I'm six months into my journey and I'm still breastfeeding. And I think that that has less to do with me being fantastic than it has to do with just getting a lot of support from lots of different people at key stages in the process. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, but I think it made a difference. Like, Brian's my good friend. 
she's another black woman. I felt very comfortable having Toya like get in there and really help me in a in a very practical way learn how to feed my baby. And so I think that those kinds of interactions basically building up a core of you know kind of like a black breastfeeding core of people yeah. who can support other black women and feeding their babies. That would be radical. And guess what? It's not difficult. It's not hard, actually. Like, I could now, now that I've been breastfeeding for six months, if I have a friend who's pregnant next year, I will be able to offer some kinds of recommendations because I've experienced it myself. So I think that the, I, I guess the main point that I'm trying to make is that we should really listen to black women. So hashtag listen to black women. It's not just like... Well, also act on what black women are telling you. <laughs> yeah. Not just listen. <laughs> but actually do it, right? Yeah. So yeah. If if doulas are saying, hey, we would love to support black and brown and native folks who are birthing people and here's what we need, give the people what they need. If they need to be fairly compensated for their time, compensate them. And mm-hmm. also, you know, there's the thing with doulas. Like not only is it an incredible service that you're providing to people, you have to be on call. So it is actually really difficult to hold a regular job and also be on call for people for their birth experiences and also not be compensated properly for that when you do show up for people, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, I think hashtag listen to black women and then hashtag act on black women. Advice. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I want to go back to something you, you know, this question of, the doctor or the nurse telling you this is how the birth has got to be. Because one of the more poignant parts of the essay for me was when you described your fear of coming off as difficult or crazy while at the hospital, even though you knew it could be a life or death situation. In some ways, this goes back to the Stanley Milgram experiments of the 1950s about obedience and authority, but it also relates to how doctors are presented on television as these infinitely wise superhumans. So how can women halt that tendency to diminish or hold their tongues during all kinds of medical situations, but also avoid the trap of like anti-science or anti-vax sort of stuff? Yeah. I mean, you're speaking to like, one of the most difficult and most important parts of being a grown-up, right? Of adulting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's amplified if you're a woman, it's amplified if you're a woman of color, it's amplified if you're a black woman. And like, for, in my particular case, it's amplified if you're a black woman who's been diagnosed with a severe mental illness, right? Because what people will tell you at every stage of the process is that you don't know your own body. And in my case, you don't know your own mind, Right. And so intuition is actually really important to generally in life, but in these situations that can be life or death situations, you have to listen to yourself and you have to stick up for yourself because it could be the difference between you and or your baby surviving and not. So, you know, I was very concerned about not being labeled as like a non-compliant patient, right? Right. Um, but I also was like, you know what? Actually, I'm just going to choose not to care in this moment what these people think about me because I would rather live with whatever residue of shame or discomfort 
might come out of having these conflicts with people than live with the unending regret of having done something that put my life or my baby's life in danger. Right. But I think the thing that I, is really essential is to know that like all these stereotypes around like the angry black women, they don't go away when you get into the delivery room. You know, mm-hmm. like they're there and they're amplified, particularly in my case, if you have a diagnosis of mental illness. And I think, you know, just because of the way the hospital is set up, it's not as if nobody knows, right? And so I, the thing that was hard is I was like trying to have a baby and also in this way on a really low level, trying to manage people's racism and yeah. their ableism and right. their um, just sense of being better or smarter than me. And I think, you know, in the case of doctors specifically, like, I wanted to go to medical school. That's a whole other thing, right? I wanted mm-hmm. to be a doctor. And I think that actually helped me in the case because I think there's a part of me that's like, well, I could have just done, I could have done this. Right? <laughs> and, I'm not and so my, my, and my, the fact that I'm not a doctor is not actually about me being less intelligent than you. It's knowing that my talents lie elsewhere. It's not in medicine. And so I think one of the things that's challenging in these interactions with doctors is that we're taught I think especially as women, to respect authority mm-hmm. and to let other people tell us what's going on with our bodies, right? And I think one of the things that can help people feel more empowered and more in control of their lives and their bodies is pushing back against that and saying, okay, I'm going to both listen to what you say and I'm also going to listen to my own intuition, that kind of small, quiet voice inside of you that tells me when something's wrong or off. And I'm also going to do my research, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I got on my friend's, um, to the mom of two, also sent me the evidence-based birth website. So I was on there getting my PhD in childbirth <laughs> <laughs> uh, while I was pregnant. And so, you know, I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever, I'm not even going to attach the value to it. You and I think to have a better experience if you can commit to standing up for yourself and to educating yourself. And I think the interesting response to this essay is that it's not just black women who have reached out to me, it's been white folks too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's partly because a lot of women experience trauma in the labor and delivery process. Yeah. And I don't know the stats, and I'm sure you're Harper, so you're, you guys will fact check this too. <laughs> I think that um, all women are very, most women who have not had adverse childhood experiences are likely to count childbirth and labor as their first traumatic experience in their adulthood. Mm. So I don't remember what the exact statistic is, but there are a lot of bad things that happen to women in the labor and delivery. And it's not just limited to black women. I think that this country really has a problem in terms of how we treat women. And I think what I came to understand and I'm coming to understand is that no one really wants to hear your birth story. They really mm-hmm. don't. If you have a healthy baby, people generally want to want you to shut up about your birth story. And mm-hmm. they want to just hold the baby because if you have a healthy baby, you should just be glad. And I think this is another way in which people show their misogyny, right? Mm-hmm. You've gone through this difficult process of bringing your life into the world. And if that part, that baby is healthy, 
the only things that we should focus on is baby. And it's like, what? <laughs> Why? You know? Yeah. Um, and I think beyond that, too, if you've had a negative pregnancy experience, if you've had a miscarriage, if your baby was stillborn, if you've been struggling with infertility, if you don't want children at all, if you've chosen to be child-free, people also want you to shut up about that. Right? Yeah. So there's not a lot of space to talk about both the joy of bringing a child into the world and the grief and complexity of not being able to have children when you wanted to, to have them or choosing that you don't want to have a child at all. Right? There's just so many ways in which we shut people down around this huge choice. It's a choice that really will impact the rest of your life. Yeah? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, so, um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess for women who don't necessarily have the same resources that were available to you in terms of like one-on-one, like personal connections, right? What, you know, which resources did you find that helped you rather than scared you? And were there any resources that you found that didn't make it into the piece that deserve some form of recognition? Yeah, sure. Um, there was a lot that was helpful. So um, there's a great, there was a great article in the Washington Post by this black woman who has similarly kind of been scared off by a lot of these stats. And I'll find the link and send it to you. Um, and basically she was like, you know what? I'm deciding to be joyful in my pregnancy. Mm. And I really held on to that and went back to that article several times because I was like, yes, there is a space for joy, even as we acknowledge all the difficulty around this. Um, I think also just like I'm really blown away by what is happening out there in terms of like these black women led birth initiatives, you know. So mm-hmm. I spoke to um True Kalman who just started um Jamal Birth Village in Ferguson, Missouri. I spoke to Chanel Porsche Albert, who was the founder of Interest on Dual Services in Brooklyn. I downloaded a really incredible Black Mama playlist of <laughs> like a, a black, new Black Mama's Guide on Mamatoto Village's website. They're based in D.C. Bloom in Baltimore has a really, they're on Instagram. They have a fantastic set of programs for new moms and also just parenting groups, and they're doing them all virtually now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're really fantastic. And uh, like, there's actually so many to name. Jenny Joseph, who, um, you know, is a midwife who has uh, an organization in Florida. There's folks in the Bay doing incredible work. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to um, interview. Like, if, if I had time, I would have interviewed 50 or more people. Because <laughs> there's just so much happening out there that's exciting. And I think what I would impress upon, like, readers of Harper's is, like, this is not an intractable, unsolvable problem. It's not like, oh, well, black women are dying in childbirth and black babies are dying and there's nothing to be done about it, so let's just feel bad, right? That's right. not where I want people to end. I think that there needs to be a combination of both systemic reform of hospitals and at the same time, we have to support the grassroots work that's being done because it's effective. Mm-hmm. Like, actually not because we feel bad and we're, like, overcome by guilt or we're going to throw money at these organizations to feel better about ourselves. But no, because the work that they're doing is innovative 
and it's helping people. Mm-hmm. And I think beyond just the fact that it's helping people, when hospitals and states and our country are all ready to transform, I think it's going to be meaningful that these organizations have already done the research and the programming to say, here, here's what we know about how to support black families. Right. And, you know, here you go, right? Because we've been doing it for years. I mean, even the, you know, part of what was important to me about including the backstory about the history of black midwives, both in the Caribbean and in the United States. I mean, I know less about what's happening on the African continent. Um, it's to say, like, this is not new. Like, black mm-hmm. midwives have been taking care of women um, in childbirth for centuries. It's not like we don't know what to do, right? In a way, it's about reclaiming and remembering what we knew and reforming the institutions that need reforming, but also not waiting on those institutions to fix themselves. Like, in the meantime, we have to, you know, I've been um, on this girl track, has this really fantastic Black History Month boot camp, so I've been going on walks with the baby every morning. Mm. And, um, one on one of the talks they were talking about, but you should never ask for permission to save your own life. Mm-hmm. And so I think in this case, these um, organizations that are led by these fierce black women are saying, we're not going to ask for permission to save our own lives. We're doing the work. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, if anything, people should just support these folks in doing what they're doing. You know, support right. the folks at Bronx Rebirth who are trying to open the first first century in the Bronx. Like, my pregnancy would have been transformed by being able to walk to my appointment, right? Mm-hmm. Not having to get on the sixth train and then up and down the stairs of the 103rd Street. I don't know if you've ever been to that station, but it's horrible. <laughs> uh, you know, like, it would have really been transformed by being able to have really high-quality um, care in my own community. And, again, this comes back to how these issues are discussed. And over the past decade, many anti-choice groups have begun campaigns based around the idea that abortion is part of the plan by racists to reduce the black population. And then that abortion is simply an extension of past state-sponsored sterilization programs. Yet abortion and other reproductive services are few and far between in many black communities. And if you go to the Planned Parenthood in, uh, let's say, lower Manhattan, you'll probably be waiting for about four hours or more. So how can we, just like everyone, begin to shift the conversation away from this notion of, you know, choice as it's genocide and toward the actual issues impacting Black mothers and their children? Yeah, I mean, that's a very complicated and question, but also pretty old one, right? So I think yeah, again, I would defer to the folks who are activists in this space, but like the reproductive justice framework says the choice over black, like black women having choice over their bodies, over whether they choose to have children, whether they choose to have an abortion if they want or need one, but that actually is radical. So to not um, be forced into sterilization is radical, mm-hmm. but also just a human right. Right. It's not a small, it's, it's both small and huge to be able to say, I have control over my, my own, um, reproductive choices. And so, you know, I, I think you didn't ask this, but like in my situation, I've never, you know, 
had the privilege of never really being forced to ask the question about, like, will I have an abortion? And my case, you know, I really, the child that I had was a very much a desired and wanted child. Mm-hmm. But even in the, you know, I think, you know, when I lost my, my child's twin brother, you know, the doctor said to us, oh, well, are you sure that you want to continue with this pregnancy? And it was difficult in that moment, even though I came to know later that it's standard practice in New York State to offer that option to folks who have had difficult pregnancies. In that moment, because of the history of sterilization in this country, I felt kind of taken aback. I was like, yeah. well, are you saying I shouldn't have my baby? Like, I felt super defensive. Even as I think that was both a standard response to our situation, and in the moment was actually a kindness to say, "Hey, you guys have experienced something really difficult, and we want you to know it's totally understandable to say we actually want to let this pregnancy go because it's too hard, right?" Right. And so I just I think the thing. That is the thing that I'm taking away from your question and from my own experience is that black women never get to have an experience that's not completely informed by the history of racialized violence in this country. Mm-hmm. And even in my own, now that I, you know, have a baby, I've got really pressed to have another one very quickly. And so, but even in my conversation about contraception, I'm always thinking, like, I don't, for example, trust the IUD. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a very safe and effective form of birth control, according to the research I've read. Because of what I know about sterilization, when I see long-acting contraception, I'm scared and suspicious. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't trust it, even though I know many of my own friends you know, doctors included, have really encouraged me to consider it. I just don't trust it's not another way of saying the black women don't have babies, right? Mm-hmm. And I think even, you know, you didn't ask about this, but I think even in this conversation about black maternal mortality, one of the things that concerns me is that even this conversation can be manipulated yeah. in such a way as to discourage black women from having children. Right. And I don't want to do that. You know, and even after my article has been published, I wondered like that. I hope that in the writing of this, I haven't inadvertently discouraged someone from having a child who wanted one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if I like really responded to your question, but I think, I think I tried. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that I think that's a great answer. And just again, I think it's always important to reiterate that anytime women talk about reproductive justice or reproductive health, it can be turned into a weapon, like very easily. And it's um, it's never by people who are doing that in good faith, let's say. But. I wanted to just a final question. You've brought him up a little bit before. Uh, how is your son doing? Oh, he's fabulous. He's really great. <laughs> he's the sweetest baby. Um, so I think that has been like the greatest gift of the whole process. And in part, 
you know, when you started the conversation by talking about, you know, trauma and traumatizing love, I was like, oh my God, I'm a new mom and I love my baby. Like, I don't, I think as much of this experience has been challenging and difficult. In part, my reason for writing this piece was to try and transform of my pain and grief into joy. But also, I tried to, um, like, underline a little bit how excited I have been to be able to finally become a mom. I feel incredibly grateful to have a healthy child, and he's fun. You know, he's exhausting, but (laughs) (laughs) that's what babies are. So um, I don't feel like surprised by any of that by any means in a way that's the joy of having a child much later in life is that you get to see everybody else go before you mm-hmm. kind of have a sense of what you're getting into even though it's completely different to be in it mm-hmm. um but anyway the baby's great uh, he's fabulous so i feel very lucky to have him. well i'm very glad to hear that and um thank you so much I, I, everything you said was really fascinating and informative so thank you Thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save 